In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. It might surprise you that one of the top ethics tests MBAs are taught is to ask yourself, what would my mom think if she found out about this? Now, of course, there are psychopaths out there who have no moral breaks, who, as it seems often to be the case, they end up in management or leading government agencies. So they might not care what mom thinks, or maybe their mom is a psychopath and mom would be perfectly okay with it. I mean, imagine Hillary in a situation like this. But it's with that in mind, to me, there is a simple test when it comes to a potentially abusive overreach and power grab by the government that officials should ask themselves. Would I want my political opponents to have the power I'm now granting to myself? Would I, as a far-left Democrat, want a conservative Republican to be able to do this? Like the state's Orwellian surveillance system we learned about two weeks ago, that will monitor social media, websites, podcasts, even radio for whatever the state deems mis, dis, or mal information. Would a Democrat want Trump to have that kind of power? If the answer is no, then it's unethical. It's an abuse of overreach. So on that front, there has been a lawsuit filed against the state's censorship program. And here's the thing. It's in large part thanks to you. I Spy Radio listeners, you made that happen. Thank you. I talked with Mark Thielman who said our listeners donated what would normally have taken him months to raise. And because of your help, he asked if I'd like to join the lawsuit as a plaintiff to help represent all of you out there, which we gladly accepted. Without this first step, none of the next steps that follow would be possible. You made it happen. We'll be talking about that lawsuit with Stephen Jonkus, the attorney. But before we get to that, Donna Kreitzberg is a former CPA, business and tax attorney and real estate broker. And she is leading the effort to get real school choice on the November 2024 ballot and make school choice a reality right here in Oregon. Donna, it's great to talk to you again. Hi, Mark. It's great to be back. Yeah. You know, there's been some fascinating articles uh, just recently in the Washington Post, no less. But uh, there's a, a bunch of others out there. And this one really jumped to my attention. It says school choice is now the number one fastest growing form of education. Uh, Their article is titled homeschooling's rise from fringe to fastest growing form of education. And they go on to say homeschooling has become by a wide margin America's fastest growing form of education as families from upper Manhattan and eastern Kentucky embrace a largely unregulated practice once confined to the ideological fringe. How do you like that? Homeschooling is an ideological fringe. Well, the opponents will always go resort to name-calling, which is unfortunate. But the whole point of school choice is to allow parents who know and love their children to be able to choose the learning environment that serves the needs of those children. So if the opponents have to go to name-calling, that's fine. We're going to keep focusing on making sure that parents can choose the learning environment and that our Oregon kids can get the best education possible. Well, what was really interesting there, just in that little bit that, that I read there from Upper Manhattan to Eastern Kentucky, it, it really is surprising how widespread this is. And it was not a small study. They they analyzed data of homeschool registration figures for nearly 7,000 individual school districts. 
And not surprising, it uh, was on the really huge upswing in a lot of blue states, uh, in particular D.C. That was up 108 percent. New York was 103 percent. California, 78 percent. But it was also kind of surprising that even in some red states, it was up quite a bit. South Dakota was uh, probably the, the largest red state, 94 percent increase. Florida was a 72 percent increase. Tennessee, 77 percent. So this really is all across the board in terms of people getting on with homeschooling. But I know that the pandemic certainly had a lot to do with that. But I think that's the thing that really surprised Washington Post was that it continued even after that, probably because people learned how great homeschooling really is. Oh, I think so. COVID definitely opened the eyes of a lot of parents when their children were sent home and had to do online programs and they saw how much time wasn't being spent on education and what the curriculum was. And they thought, well, wow, we can do this ourselves. And the availability of products out there to help curriculum Mm -hmm. and videos. And so there's a, a whole world out there that helps homeschool families. And what's happened too is because of COVID, I think homeschoolers are homeschooling their children, not from strictly a religious perspective, but from a full-on education perspective. So I think if they did a study to see, are you doing homeschooling because of religious concerns or just education concerns, I think there's going to be a big increase in just education. Parents are able to, you know, work with their children and help the parents arrange their whole family schedule more. Instead of having the child gone for eight hours a day, they can do homeschooling in a much more condensed, they can do outside activities too. So homeschooling is now a much broader category than what it might have been in the past. Yeah. And you know, that was one of the things that surprised me years ago when I first really kind of dug into homeschooling a little bit was that surprisingly, one of the uh, groups of parents that that were really embracing homeschooling were high professionals like doctors and attorneys. And as as you said, they could do homeschooling uh, much more condensed rather than seven or eight hours at school. Plus, you've got long commutes. If they were driving their kids to school or uh, a lot of time on the buses, they could condense it into about four hours of actual school time, which leaves a lot more time for parenting with stay-at-home moms or, or dads. Uh, with the kids. And then it's not just the schooling, but they can do outside activities. They they would meet with other homeschooling parents, go to museums and whatnot. So it really is not just a, a better learning environment because they really know their kids, but also they're able to expand into other opportunities that school kids couldn't get or simply don't get enough of, especially on individualized basis. Exactly. And the opportunities are endless. As you say, there are other groups that you can meet up with to do it. Um, what is it called? You know, when you go to a museum, I mean, like a field um, trip or something like that. Field trip. That yes. was the word I was looking for. Yes. And so there's, there's plenty of socialization that used to be something that they were criticized for, but that's a non-issue now because there's so many opportunities and it just allows the parent child bond to be strengthened. And when the education component of the day is over, then the parents and children can have more family time. Yes. And that's something that I think COVID really brought out is the ability of families to spend quality time together. They yeah. were half, they had to under COVID, but now they they can choose to do so. Yes. Okay, let's go and take a break there. Come back, we'll continue with Donna Kreisberg, who is spearheading the effort to get real school choice here on the ballot. Head to Education Freedom for Oregon. That's F-O-R, educationfreedomfororegon.com on how you can help make that happen.
And welcome back. We're talking with Donna Kreitzberg, who is leading the effort to get real school choice here in Oregon. And uh, to do that, they need to qualify for the 2024 ballot. And that means signatures. You can find out more by heading to educationfreedomfororegon.com. That's the uh, word F-O-R, educationfreedomfororegon.com. And uh, Donna, one of the things that we keep hearing from listeners is about the funding. And they're really concerned that if these dollars are pegged to follow the kids, um, that will somehow mean that, you know, whether you're dealing with homeschooling or some other alternatives, that the government would then be able to compel curriculum choices on students. Can you address that issue? Sure. The one thing to keep in mind is that the money is not the trigger event. So it's not that the money following the kids allows the government, because there have been court cases that say once the money goes from the government to the account, it stops being government money. So that's established. But in addition to that, we put into our constitutional amendment language that specifically prevents the government from following with regulations the parents or the private schools that use the money. So we, we basically buttress the ability and the protections of parents and private schools to freely use the money. Parents can choose to customize the education for their child by having them attend a private school and use the money to pay tuition, and then the private school can receive that money. And the language of the constitutional amendment says that the government can't tell the parent or the private school what curriculum to use, what education practices to use, what admission policy to use, what teacher qualifications they have to adhere to. So what we're really trying to do is build a brick wall between what the government can regulate, which is public schools and to a lesser extent charter schools, and what it cannot regulate, which is private schools and homeschoolers. So it's not the money that triggers it, it's the, basically, the language. And so we were cutting that language out and severing the connection between the government and the money by saying that once the money goes into the account, it stops being government funds. So we've put in many layers of protection so that that isn't an issue. So it protects the parents to then customize the education for their child and teach the child for a homeschooler in the manner and with the focus that they want without the government coming into their living room and telling them what to do. The government will have no ability to do that. And similarly, with the private schools, they're able to hire, for example, a retired college professor who might not have gone to some um, university to get a teaching certificate, but just think of the wealth of knowledge that that professor would have. So private schools are able to have teachers that will serve the needs of the students and not just have to have some certificate. So we're really trying to make sure that all four areas of education, public school, charter school, private school, homeschool, are all unique and keep their uniqueness. So it really gives parents the ability to choose which environment their child needs to be in to have their child's needs met. So um, I I hope that um, people really understand that, that that's the point of what you're doing. You really are building that firewall there between the funding and the government control over what happens in, in those homeschool classrooms. Um, in, in fact, I think it says right on your webpage that school choice funds, once deposited into the parent school choice account, they become no longer public funds, as, as you say. So, uh, again, I, I hope we've addressed that. But, you know, if people still have questions, certainly write to us, uh, mark at ispyradio.com or carla at ispyradio.com, and uh, we'll try to get those addressed. Um, just to go back to the curriculum restrictions, what kind of governmental controls are there right now on homeschooling, if any? Well, there are, basically there's a rule that says all kids must go to public school except, and then there are statutory exceptions. One of them is an exception for homeschooling. Another one is for private school. 
So they are regulated right now by the government because they, they're a statutory exception. The government could then change how that exception is worded. But otherwise, right now for homeschoolers, there aren't very many re restrictions on them. They have to test at 3, 5, 8, and 10th grade. They have to give a notice to their ESD, their um, education service district. And so they, they do have a lot of freedom. But what our amendment will do is for those parents who want to use the amendment, it will protect them like a suit of armor and prevent the government from regulating them. So once the measure passes, as to the parents who are using it, it will nullify existing laws and it will preempt and prevent future laws that conflict. Gotcha. So a homeschooler right now is subject to regulation and that regulation could change and become worse. But a parent who uses the school choice amendment will be in a constitutional category, not the statutory one. And so they will be protected by the language in the amendment, which says the government can't tell them what curriculum to use. The government mm. can't tell the parent that they have to have a certificate. The government can't tell the parents how to educate their children in a homeschool setting. So it'll offer protections that don't exist now, and it'll basically protect them from future laws too, because they will just be governed by the constitutional amendment that we have, which puts those protections into the constitution so that it bypasses the legislature and it bypasses the governor. I'm actually really very glad to hear you explain all that because I, I think that's pretty clear that parents, if this school choice amendment passes, they'll be doubly protected, it sounds like, uh, not just keeping the government out of the classrooms, but now you have that constitutional right as well. Um, but we're, we're talking funding here. That's the school funding coming in to support parents in this. But you need money now to make this all happen, of course. And I know that some there are some bigger pockets out there uh, that are considering helping you guys make this happen. Let's say if if, if someone was to drop a million dollars on school choice, how would you guys use that? Well, one thing we are doing right now is we have wonderful volunteers who are going to events. We're reaching out to any uh, avenue where there's a lot of parents, a lot of voters, and we're asking them to get signatures. And that's a wonderful effort, but it's also cumbersome and time-consuming. So money we would use right now would be to have another category of signature gathering, and that's what's called paid signature gatherers. So and if we were able to receive four to five million dollars to have paid signature gatherers, we could have that happening at the same time that we have our volunteers out there. Because in order to get our measures on the November 2024 ballot, we have to get a certain amount of signatures right. on these petitions. And so we're out there working very hard and we're getting a lot of signatures and it's going well. But just as a precaution and to speed up that process, we would use money for paid signature gatherers. And of course, we have costs when we print the petitions and when we mail things to volunteers and when we print out our signs and our flyers and all that sort of thing. And I've been working for two and a half years and I don't take a dime from this. I just do it because I think it's so crucial for Oregon and for our kids that we get these education options to them. And our volunteers feel the same way. They're just wonderful folks. Oh. So. It, the money would then go just to cost. Right. Well, I really agree with you. This really is absolutely critical. And I think if we can get this through, it will have generational impacts here in Oregon. Uh, unfortunately, we're up against the clock. John, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you bet. Thank you for letting me be here. And I would love folks to go to our website, educationfreedomfororegon.com. Thank you. And welcome back. We're talking now to Stephen Jonkis. He's an attorney representing the plaintiffs in the newly filed lawsuit against the governor, the secretary of state, and the elections director 
for their Orwellian surveillance system to monitor social media online content, including web pages, blogs, and even radio for whatever the state determines is misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation about the elections. Stephen, it's great to talk to you. Good day, Mark. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, well, except I suddenly found out a couple of weeks ago that we're living now in in a very Orwellian state. But you know, this was really shocking when we talked to Mark Thielman about this a couple of weeks ago, and we're so glad to be part of this lawsuit now. As you were reading through this RFP, what really jumped out at you when you read through it? The surveillance piece and the disarm piece and the countermeasures piece. I guess, mm-hmm. I guess those. This is more than one thing. Those all have, it's warlike yes. language. Yes. So the state is in a bunker mentality and they are looking at their political opponents as not the citizens of the state, hmm. but their opponents on a battlefield, which they need to uh, neutralize and perhaps eliminate. So this is this is very scary stuff. This is Orwellian stuff. This is police state stuff. The I mean, it's ironic that this contract was signed the same week that Dinesh D'Souza's movie Police State yes. aired. Wasn't that something? And uh, I, I went and watched that, and it's it rings so true, and it's so scary. And I would encourage people to go and see that movie, as well as Dinesh D'Souza's other movies. But yeah. Yeah, that's the most recent one. Well, I was reading through that, you know, in preparation to talk to Mark about it. One of the things that really just galled me so much is that here the state is actively freezing and really uh, putting a chilling and dampening effect on free speech. It's the state's job to protect free speech. And here they are um, turning, as you say, turning on their own citizens and making them the bad guys. I, I, I found that ex- exceptionally infuriating. I agree. And, you know, it's, it's, they've, they 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 think the message their messaging is the problem. Hmm. It's not their message. It's their election system that is the problem. But of course, they won't look inwards or or look at that. They they think the messaging is the problem, and they just need to tamp down on the uh, criticism of their election system, and everything will be okay. Yeah, it's but, it's, it's kind of like their that, approach is we can lie our way out of this. Yes, and oh, we can cover it up. Right. And like like the all the missing disinformation by the government in the COVID fiasco, mm-hmm. um, the counter information was covered up and, and censored so that people did not know in the COVID situation that the vaccines were terribly dangerous and ineffective. And that was known from the outset. Yep. In this case, they are trying to um, depress information about the election. And what's great about free speech is that truth arises from this amalgamation and distillation of different ideas, the uninhibited marketplace of ideas. The truth comes out because people analyze and they think about it and they say, well, yes, what they just said makes sense. Mm -hmm. It, It correlates with my life experience. It correlates with uh, what is common sense? But if you know someone says something way out of you know strange, then then they're not going to you know that gets discarded very easily, right? In uh, the free marketplace of ideas, right? So the reason why they are seeing such a crescendo of criticism 
on the election system is because all that criticism rings true. Mm-hmm. It is true. Yeah. It, and, and it relates to their actions. For heaven's sakes, if you are claiming that as an elections divisions, you're transparent and you're open and you're honest and that we have fair and free elections, then maybe when somebody asks for a database, like what happened there with Tim Sipple in Washington County, maybe you don't sue them to stop them from access to it. That does not bode very well when you're trying to say you're transparent that you're going to sue people who dare to ask questions. Yeah, yeah. You know, arresting people for saying that our elections are rigged seems like a horrible way to convince people that our elections are not rigged. Exactly right. Exactly right. So that is there really any reason as you look at this RFP and I'm sure that they're going to try to justify this um, any number of ways, but is there any reason to think that the Secretary of State is not setting themselves up as the Ministry of Truth here? But it's just, just this is another incremental step towards that. Right. And, and um, yes, they, they are the Ministry of Truth because they're the ones that, that determine what's true under this scheme. And anything that, that they deem untrue is missed or disinformation. When what we know from, from the last three years is that it, the government is the source of all these things, mis, dis, and malinformation. Mm-hmm. It's the government that has been lying like crazy on everything. And that, that is very scary that they've been get, getting away with it because our mainstream media is complicit um, and is protecting the government. So since when? Did the mainstream media protect the government? Yeah. And I was alive during Watergate. The mainstream media was not protecting the government back then. Today, it seems like their main job is to protect the government. Yep. And that's that's a very scary thing. And and you start asking questions like why? Why are they doing that? It leads you into some you know, scary conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as, as you say, this is really an incremental step. And, and that was the other thing that I thought, as I read this, if they're starting with elections, where else are they going to start going with this? So, um, lots of big questions still for Stephen Jonkus. He is the attorney in this case against the secretary of state and their self-declared ministry of truth. When it comes to all things, elections, I'm sure they can be trusted, but you better not question them. We'll be right back. And welcome back. This is the Ice Pie Radio Show. We're talking today to Stephen Jonkas. He's an attorney representing the plaintiffs in the newly filed lawsuit against the governor, secretary of state, and the elections director for their Orwellian surveillance system that is going to be out there monitoring whatever you say on social media or uh, web pages and blogs, even radio for whatever the state determines is misinformation about the elections. And just to read a little bit from that lawsuit, the elections division is seeking a vendor to help provide a suite of products to identify and disarm Harmful mis, dis, or mal information online. The state's censorship project places unelected government officials and an out-of-country, out-of-country artificial intelligence censorship company as the arbiters of each of these judgments. Whether a statement is true or false, whether a statement is deliberately created to manipulate, whether a statement causes harm, whether a statement is used out of context. So there you are, the ministry of truth. And uh, Stephen, um, a lot of this, of course, comes down to First Amendment protections. And right here, just the text of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law 
respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or, and this is the key point, abridging the freedom of speech. And the word abridge there, um, it means to deprive or to cut off. Uh, That was first used some 900 years ago in that context. It also means to make shorter, or it could be uh, mean to curtail. Curtail itself means to limit or restrict and keep in check. So is there any way to look at this RFP scheme as somehow not abridging, meaning depriving, cutting off, curtailing, limiting, restricting, or keeping in check free speech? No, there, there, there isn't. The government has absolutely no role in regulating free speech. They have no role in deciding what is true. The, the Supreme Court has said over and over again in various cases going way back that the First Amendment is there and reflects a profound national commitment to the principle that debate should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. It's an uninhibited, uninhibited marketplace ideas of ideas. Well, we had talked in that last segment there about this being a slippery slope. And the problem, of course, I think, well, many problems with this, but one of the problems is where this will all lead. I mean, if they are attacking people over First Amendment rights, and this narrow slice of speech you know, relating to elections, what's next? That you can't talk about God because the state believes in evolution, and therefore anything you say that calls evolution into question is somehow not allowed. I mean, you can see where this could all go. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I found this quote from President Truman back in 1950 that talks about this problem back then. Mm-hmm. He said, um, once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, which is what Oregon is doing, it only has one place to go, and that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all of its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. Hmm. President Truman said that in 1950 in his address to Congress. It's it's more relevant today. Yes. Because that's what the federal government is doing to us and what Oregon is doing to us. It's like where else is this going? But then as you after you filed this, uh, I know that you were contacted by an attorney friend of yours, and it turns out this is not the only case of surveillance out there. Uh there's two current cases involving the Oregon Titan Fusion Center. Uh I can't say I've ever heard of that before. Uh, what do you know about this? I didn't know about it. I had not heard of it until I heard it referred to in um, the um, video that the state put out for their contractors. And they, they referred in there, referring you know, information from this uh, AI collection system that they're trying to develop to various entities like the FBI, the state police, and then they also mentioned this Titan Fusion Center. And that is something that I was unaware of. And uh, I just learned this morning about another lawsuit that was filed almost two years ago, challenging the Titan Fusion Center as uh, ultra various act. Uh, it's a state court action in Marion County that's uh, very active right now, still active two years later. Hmm. It uh, goes by the name of Farrell Smith versus the Oregon Department of Justice. So... If there is this new surveillance system that they just passed here with this RFP for logically uh, AI and this Titan Fusion program, it really makes one wonder 
what else is out there that we don't know about? And so you've got these nefarious, shadowy surveillance uh, uh, programs out there that the state is doing. Does anyone at the state not see how just having those creates distrust of the government? Did they not make that connection? You know, I, I can't get in their heads. It's, you, you wonder uh, what goes through their heads. But I mean, I, I think that they tell themselves they're doing good, that uh, they're the ones that know how to run uh, society. Um, and they, they don't consider themselves evil. But that's where the the phrase comes from the banality of evil. Yeah. Yeah. Most villains never think of themselves as evil. Yeah. They're, what they're doing is, you know, they're, they're just working in the trenches. They're just following, you know, what they think is the right thing to do. And it's banal. It's, yeah. but, but add it all up when you don't pay attention to, um, constitutional freedoms, it turns to evil. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, we touched on the First Amendment rights there a, a little bit. and I kind of interrupt you and sorry about that. But uh, what specific rights are being violated in the state's actions here? Well, our uh, right to free speech. I mean, I'm not sure what, what you're getting at. Actually, well, but, I mean, is, uh, it, is it more than just the First Amendment? As I kind of recall, I think you also touched on the 14th Amendment. How does that uh, impact? How does that inform this lawsuit? Oh, oh the, the, the Okay, the, the First Amendment is, applies to the federal government. And then the 14th Amendment came along later and applied all the Bill of Rights, the first through the seventh and, and beyond, to the states. So before the 14th Amendment came along, the Bill of Rights, like the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, did not apply to the states. It only applied to the federal government. So that's the reason why we talk about the 14th Amendment in the lawsuit. There's also um, the Fourth Amendment, which involves unreasonable searches hmm. and surveillance. And that's also implicated by this, but we're, we're choosing to go with the First Amendment because the protections are stronger. Hmm. Okay, lots more to talk about, about this Orwellian surveillance system Oregon is pushing forward to monitor elections and what it deems to be misinformation about the elections. More with Stephen Jonkus, the attorney in the case that's been filed against them when we come back. And welcome back. We'll talk today to Stephen Jonkus. He's an attorney representing the plaintiffs in the newly filed lawsuit against the governor, secretary of state, and the elections director for their Orwellian surveillance system to monitor anything that you say that they consider to be misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation, or MDM, as the state refers to it. And of course, that's just going to be the starting point for all of this, and it's just going to get worse and worse until somebody steps up and stops us, and that's what this lawsuit is trying to do. And just to read a bit more from that lawsuit, in a quote, pre-proposal conference, Nikki Fisher, an elections division taxpayer-funded employee, gave a chilling description of what the elections division was planning. She said that the elections division was looking for an early warning system to identify MDM and identification of effective countermeasures. Fisher further states that the elections division plans to share information with the relevant partners such as the FBI, Oregon State Police, National Guard, Oregon Titan Fusion Center, a crimes clearinghouse aimed at terrorist activity, CISA, that's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. But don't worry, the state says they're just monitoring. Yeah, 
speaking of this particular lawsuit, though, Mark Thielman is part of, and actually several of the other plaintiffs are also plaintiffs in another lawsuit uh, that you guys have before the Ninth Circuit. Does this uh, new lawsuit impact that other one in any way? I mean, now that you know the extent that the state is one to go to, are, are you looking at maybe uh, modifying that other lawsuit in, in any way, given what you know now? Uh, no, this, the other lawsuit's basically on the merits uh, or the lack of merits in the Oregon's election system. So um, these, this is, these are the criticisms that the, that the state want to su- wants to suppress, mm. the information in this lawsuit. So this lawsuit was filed a year ago, um, and we're now, of course, we got dismissed out of the district court, and we're now in the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. This is another federal case, so we're in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And all the briefings been filed, and we have an oral argument coming up on December 6th. And that oral argument can be uh, viewed by video, by streaming video from the Ninth Circuit's website. Hmm. Now, that lawsuit really is effectively asking the state to let the plaintiffs prove that there's no interference with the elections or and that the elections really do have integrity. Um you would think that the state would want, if they really are wanting to be trustworthy and really want to be open and transparent and really prove that, yes, in fact, our elections um, aren't uh, being violated in any way and that they really are fair and free, you would think they would welcome that help. Well, yeah. Um, I, you know, the, the lawsuit is really directed at asking for a declaration that mail-in voting and, and uh, computerized tallying of votes are unconstitutional. They're unconstitutional uh, because there are no processes by which the public can gain confidence that the elections are free and fair. Hmm. They're based on a a very important quote from Justice Thomas, who's our best Supreme Court justice, in a dissenting opinion. And he wrote that, quote, elections enable self-governance. Only when, only when they include processes that give citizens confidence in the fairness of the election, close quote. Mm. So that you feel in the, out there in the public like there are processes that give you confidence that the elections are fair. And I think the answer is very clearly no. So that's what the lawsuit would be about if we got to discovery, was discovery of the processes that exist that give people confidence or don't are lacking yeah. Yeah. In, in information that give people confidence. Yeah. See, and, and I hear that. And what I envision is, yeah, they're trying to help the state prove that everything's on the up and up. And, and yet for some reason, the state would rather sue people rather than to uh, actually expose those processes and develop processes that, that would make things fair and free and open. Um, the judge that we drew in this case, do you know if he has ruled on other cases that deal with constitutional issues or constitutionally protected rights? And, and where did his rulings fall on those on those kinds of uh, issues? I don't know his history on ruling those kinds of issues. He did rule on a secondary issue in one of my other cases, um, which is challenging the, the, the government on vaccines. Um, and it wasn't in my favor. Um but he is the chief judge of the District of Oregon, and I believe he has, like like most people, uh, a strong conviction in free speech. 
Mm. So um, that free speech is necessary in order to have a free society. Oh, absolutely. So I don't think this is a political issue. It shouldn't be a political. No, issue. It, you're, you're and you're that you are absolutely right on. I mean, this is something that I'm I'm really genuinely surprised that more Democrats haven't come out about this, and, and we'll talk about that in the next segment here. But uh, but you're right. It is uh, free speech is absolutely foundational to a, a free society. There's really no other way to look at that. Um, as far as the state is going to um, respond on this, and and I don't think they have as yet. Um, uh, maybe you know that, but I, I can imagine where the state is going to come back with, oh, it's not really a monitoring system, and we're not really stopping anybody from exercising their free speech. It's it's just to better inform our rapid response team about trends and what we consider lies, so we can exercise our own free speech. Is is, is that kind of how you see their arguments coming out? Yeah, I. Um... I'm not sure what they're going to come out with. They're going to certainly downplay the significance of what they're doing. They'll, they'll certainly do that. But that's that's not a legal argument that defeats, you know, the, that dismisses the case. To dismiss the case, they might try to say we have no standing or something like that. But in terms well, if, of... If they're monitoring radio, I certainly have standing. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I think... Their attempts to uh, diminish the significance of what this contract does is just belied by the statements, the words used in the contract, mm. which are words like combat, yes, early not- notification systems, yep. targeting, disarm, countermeasures. I mean, those words you can't get, you don't get to redefine <laughs> what those words mean. They're plain. Yeah, it's plain what they're doing. Yeah. So. Um, I'm sure they'll try, but I don't think that that effort would be successful. Well, let's certainly hope not. All right, uh, we will wrap things up with Stephen Jonkas. He is the lawyer in the uh, new lawsuit against the governor, secretary of state, and elections director about their Orwellian surveillance system of the elections. Stay with us. Back in our final segment now here on the Ice Fire Radio Show, we've been talking with Stephen Jonkus about this Orwellian surveillance system that we just found out about two weeks ago, talking with Mark Thielman and uh, exposing all this. And now there is an active lawsuit against the Secretary of State, the governor's office, and the uh, elections director. And I'd like to read this from that lawsuit, uh, which people can find on IcebyRadio.com in the links and information section. Uh, today's show is 13-45. Quote, it is Oregon's sacred duty to protect the right of free speech, and that includes especially speech with which the state disagrees and is critical of the state. The state is prohibited from stigmatizing those with whom it disagrees with a yellow star of disinformation. And, you know, I'm so glad that you added that part, because whether it's your friends, your family, your work or greater society, we don't all agree. It's when we disagree and have the ability to disagree without repercussions or fear of repercussions that we can know that there is honesty among us. The state's actions here chills that free expression. If whenever you open your mouth, you have to, in the back of your mind, wonder what might get you in trouble with the ministry. So as far as how the state may come back on this, if a citizen were to hire an AI company to snoop through government emails and uh, public posts and identify how they were discussing or responding to or narratives the state was creating about elections. In other words, if, if a citizen tried to do what the state is doing to its citizens, would that be legal for that citizen to do that? Of course. That's what citizens are supposed to do, to question their government. The difference is the government is supposed to be our servant. 
Hmm. And the difference is the government has the power to arrest and imprison people. Right. So uh, a citizen doesn't have that power. And it is a it is this is a government of the people for the people. So the citizen needs to be on high alert for corruption and tyranny evolving within the government. Right. And it we as citizens we have a we have the power to abolish the government right. when it is right there in the Declaration of Independence. So uh, it's it's completely uh, not, not a parallel. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think you bring up the right point there is that people have more rights than the government they're supposed to. And of course the, the key difference there is that this threat that the government is this big giant dark shadowy, uh, uh, figure overseeing everything that you're saying with the very real threat that they could, they could prosecute you, that they could put you in jail. Uh, they could do any number of things to you as a citizen that you as a citizen cannot do to the government. And that's why the government needs to be responsive to people. So I think I think that's a really key point that you bring up there. We had mentioned earlier about the Democrats and, and surprisingly, they're very quiet on this, which is uh, sad because back when I was growing up, Democrats were, were very keen on free speech. They really that was a, a key focus for them. That's why the ACLU really got going was to defend uh, those those types of liberties. And now they've all gone silent. And yet you've got somebody at the federal level, like Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who is out there trying to uh, get rid of some of this monitoring of uh, uh, people's posts and, and some of the other things that we've seen. So he is at least on board. Where are the Democrats here in Oregon that are speaking out about this at the state level? Are, are any of them aghast at this? I'm not aware of that. Um, they should be. Um there was that letter that uh, Ed Deal wrote to and de- demanded they stop this, yes. writing to the Secretary of State. I saw the list of signees. I don't think there are any Democrats there, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm I'm not aware of any. No. And uh, but but I would point out this this uh, lawsuit filed almost two years ago against the Titan system. The plaintiffs in that case are people that I disagree with on almost every political point. They're leftists, but they were being surveilled by the government and they filed a lawsuit to stop the government from surveilling them. So there should be a wide spectrum of political, it's not a political issue. This is an issue of we the people versus the government. Mm. And the government is is a necessary evil. You have to have government so you don't have chaos and, and, uh, and anarchy. But while you have to have government, the founders understood that government was also the biggest threat to freedom. Right. And, and unfortunately, over our 250 years, the protections that we have in the Constitution have been eroded away. Yes. And so the government has grown, is, is a severe threat to our freedom. And, and, you know, it's sometimes I think, I don't know if we're not past the point of no return to take a pessimistic view at it because um, they're talking about digital currency mm-hmm. and vaccine passports yep. and all those things will make us, if they go into effect, yeah. will make us uh, prisoners, yep. digital prisoners, and we'll never escape yep. uh, from, from that system. Yes. They're even talking about things like carbon passports, uh, as we found out on last week's show, um, when we were talking about green hydrogen, is, is that that's something that California, I guess, is looking at right now is to issue basically a card of how much carbon you're entitled to. So 
Yeah, really crazy. So as far as next steps um, are concerned with this lawsuit, are you looking at doing things like subpoenaing um, the Secretary of State, Facebook and Twitter and, and the other ones to see what they've been asked to actively help monitor? Because I would suspect that the reality is much more than what's hinted at in the RFP. Um, you know, so you would want to look at the actual contract and, and whatnot. And, and what kind of costs are there for those kinds of subpoenas involved? So we're not to that point yet. Um, the next step will be filing a motion for uh, a preliminary injunction. And there'll be briefing. And a prelim- what a preliminary injunction does is, if, if granted, it would be a, an order against the state to stop doing what they're doing uh, re- with regards to the surveillance and this contract. Um, uh, so that's, that's all legal questions. The, the evidence, we have all the evidence we need on that. And that's the RFP itself. I suppose it would help to have the contract, but the RFP is, is probably enough. So that's the first step in the litigation to get the court to um, ask the court to enjoin their any progress, stop it in its tracks. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, we are up against the clock. There's so much more to talk about this, and I suspect we'll have you back in a couple of weeks to, to do that. Stephen Jonkins, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. Granted, they're not at the subpoena stage yet, but wouldn't it be nice with all the times Facebook has removed something, you posted or restricted or shadow banned you or even put you in Facebook jail for something it's far left little fact checkers didn't like, wouldn't it be sweet, sweet justice to help subpoena Facebook? Stephen told me off air that the subpoenas themselves aren't terribly expensive, but what does add up is the time to comb through all the evidence that they dump on you from the subpoena. If you'd like to donate to the lawsuit to help continue this fight, head to battlegroundoregon.org, that's battlegroundoregon.org, and you can donate there. Also, an update. A couple hours after we wrapped our interview, the Secretary of State responded to the letter that the Republican legislators had sent demanding the state stop this attack on free speech. And exactly as I predicted during the interview, the state is essentially claiming, oh, we're not really infringing on anyone's free speech. (laughs) We'd never do that. We're just monitoring everything being said. It's all about trends and feeding the AI information to help the state respond and churn out better propaganda, better information. If you read their letter carefully, you can see how they are really setting up themselves as the authority, as the only ones who have the truth. There's this, quote, There is a lot of misinformation online about this RFP. I'm happy to help set the record straight. That right there is going to be their tact. Gosh, there's misinformation even about this RFP. You can only trust us. About the distrustful information they created by not being trustworthy about elections in the first place. And here's the big thing. They claim a contract has not yet been signed. And that right there is the little weasel nuance that professional manipulators use. That kernel of truth, if you remember from previous shows on disinformation. But they admit they are in the process. In other words, they are still going to go ahead with this. It's not that there won't be a contract or that they've called it off, but they will use that little kernel to make out like any dispute can't be trusted or is misinformation based on the nuance, the kernel, that the contract hasn't been signed yet. We shouldn't have to fight the state. The state should be fighting for our rights. They should be defending them. Instead, this is where we're at. And it will only continue unless and until we all stand up 
Because as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a faith that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.